Hi, I'm Tina Desiree Berg, and welcome to The 34. Welcome to this week's podcast. Today we have John Graziano live in studio, and we're going to go through the best and worst political moments of 2019. We should start with the worst, right? We want to say the best for last? Yes. All right, so number five. We'll do five on each. Number five, worst was Space Farce. Princess Vespa spaceship within range, sir. Good. Fire a warning shot across her nose. What's going on? It's either the 4th of July or someone's trying to kill us. Hey, I don't have to put up with this. I'm rich. What are you doing? I'm calling my father. 1-800-RUIDIA. Careful, you idiot. I said across her nose, not up it. Sorry, sir. Doing my best. Who made that man a gunner? I did, sir. He's my cousin. Who is he? He's an asshole, sir. I know that. What's his name? That is his name, sir. Asshole. Major asshole. And his cousin? He's an asshole, too, sir. Gunner's made first class Philip asshole. How many assholes we got on this ship, anyhow? Yo! All right, so the main reason this is the worst is because really United States of America, we've now colonized the entire planet and we're gonna colonize outer space. Yeah. To the tune of what, $2 billion? Right, um, and part of the problem is it's absolute complete fiction. Yeah. I mean, we can barely keep a space station in orbit. Um, <laughs> we haven't gone back to the moon since uh, the, the 1970s. Right. Uh, but we're suddenly gonna we're suddenly gonna have like the Enterprise cruising around shooting Klingons. It's it's complete fantasy. It's a con game just to shovel more money to defense contractors. Hundred percent. So this would create a sixth branch of our military. So it's a whole new branch. They're gonna split that off. It's two billion for the first five years. They're gonna add fifteen thousand in personnel. And one of my favorite things I want to read this quote was uh, the head of defense department said. Space is not just a support function, it's a war-fighting domain. We have to be prepared to fight, deter, and win. Yeah. Like, really? That means, first of all, that means nothing. It means nothing. Um, and basic, basically what they're doing is um, the defense contractors suddenly aren't getting enough money. $700 billion wasn't enough for them. So they need, uh, they, they need to shovel more taxpayer money into their, into their greedy faces. And let's talk about that for a second, because that, that, I would say we can lump that conversation into this one. We saw this in, insane increase over our previous budgets. We now spend, what, 10 times more than the other 40, next 40 countries combined, whatever, yeah. the, whatever that number is, is astronomical. And every single member of Congress, both House and Senate, like, seem to think that this is okay. There's like maybe five exceptions to the rule. Right. So these are Trump enablers. They don't want to bitch about Trump, but they're mm -hmm. going to turn around and say it's fine if we increase this ridiculous defense right. budget to the detriment of any kind of social program in the United States. Well, I mean, all the Democrats are running around asking Trump how he's going to pay for it, right? Right. So, no, they just give him the money. They just hand they him just the hand money. They just hand it to him. That's exactly what um, they did. And so money to kill people is unlimited. Money to stop corporations from killing people, how are you going to pay for that? 
Yeah, 100%. So that's that's number five. Number four, I wanted to talk about the UK election. And I think this has been devastating uh, in a couple of ways. The first way is that we saw a continual cycle of, 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 of smear job, a journalist smear job, the media saying mm-hmm. that Corbyn was anti-Semitic because he had the audacity to criticize the state of Israel. And this is something that's been bothering me for years now, but it's a a form of propaganda. If we tie old Jewish people to the country of Israel, it automatically, it Teflon coats criticism of the state of Israel, no matter what they do foreign policy wise. And we saw that sort of reach a peak level during the UK election. Mm -hmm. And now we're seeing that come over to the United States where in the last couple of weeks, We've seen people try to say this about Bernie Sanders, which is right. even more egregious because Bernie Sanders is a Jewish and he lost members of his family in the Holocaust. So mm-hmm. to me, the most anti-Semitic thing you can do to me is assume that the entire group is monolithic in its beliefs. Yes. And if you don't agree with this uh, set of ideals that are very right wing in, in the state of Israel, then you're not a real Jew. Mm-hmm. You're what was the, that gal that writes for uh, D.C.? The Washington Examiner, she even oh. went so far to say that, that Bernie was ethnically Jewish, but not. Right. And she's which a is, goy on top of it. It's like, don't goy split. Which is getting very close to, like, 1940s Germany race science. I agree. Um, we just watched a movie agree. last night where this was going on, where they were trying to figure out who was the real Jews. And who bag of Marbles, the, yeah. Yeah, Bag of Marbles, which is a fantastic movie. Um, but the other thing is, for me, it's worse than that. Because... There is no more anti-Semitic statement you can make than tying all Jewish people to the genocidal maniacs running Israel right now. Zionism is by definition a racist policy. So what they're saying is all Jews are racists. I agree, and but I think it's, it's a political theory that came up, you know, obviously decades and decades ago. And when you think about it, at that particular time, if you go back to the 1920s, even earlier, maybe 1910s. It was the late 18th, yeah. late 19th century. But as it, they progressed to try to yeah. find land, uh, most Jewish people actually didn't agree with political Zionism. It yes. wasn't because it is sort of the antithesis to what if you're if you're raised in the sort of left wing left wing tradition of, of Judaism, it's it's not it, it doesn't really fit. Yeah. It's not part of Jewish teachings. It's, no, it's not, not part of a part of any of the. And in the, fact, the Torah Jews would say it's the opposite because yeah. we're not supposed to have a homeland. Yeah, it's just a bunch of religious zealots invented this in the late nineteenth century, and it it. They took weren't off. even religious; they were atheists. I don't know how many people realize that. I didn't know that. At all. Most of the original Zionists were actually atheists. Mm-hmm. None of this has anything to do with religion whatsoever. They, right. they will say that it's our homeland because the Bible says so, but that's really hospitalized. It's just an excuse. Yeah, yeah, and and if anybody thinks. Um, the establishment of Israel was about anything but putting a big European colony in the middle of the Middle East. 100%. You're, you're kidding yourself. Yeah, I agree. I have to agree with that. It's, it's for geopolitical reasons. Yeah. And, uh, and, it, and it remains to be the case. And in fact, you know, as much criticism as we have for Bibi Netanyahu, he's not the most right-wing person in Israel. He doesn't um, even break the top ten. No, the home party is, is uh, yeah. neo-fascist. I mean, so... It, it, it's, it's sort of in the way that the entire United States has, and, and I'd say the UK as well, has has moved to the right, so the center is now on the right side. The yeah. same is true for Israel. Yeah. So, uh, but I'd say even more so. And they literally have Israeli ministers calling for, just openly calling for yes, the elimination is. of... Kahana, yeah. anybody that followed him back, he's no longer with us, thank God, but... Anything going yeah. forward is. But let's go back to the UK election, which yes, is we not how much I we, we, we can talk all day about 
how crappy Israel is. But um, the real thing about the U UK election that was devastating was how successful this completely yeah. bullshit smear campaign was. And the reason it was successful. The reason it was successful was not because the Tories suddenly figured out they had a brain and did this masterful propaganda. No, no the reason it was successful is because the people in Corbyn's own party, the centrists in his own party, betrayed him and went after him on anti-Semitism because just like here, they would rather have a fascist in power than a progressive. It's a model that they're trying to use here and they're such gigantic idiots they never correct, connected that, oh, maybe the guy whose family died in the Holocaust isn't the one we should be calling anti-Semitic. So I think it, the good news is it totally backfired here, but they're going to be trying other things. We're going to see the rape essay come up. We're going to see all this. Oh, you mean in relation to Bernie Sanders? In relation yeah. to Bernie. They will be throwing everything at it. I agree. I want to, let, let me focus something on the UK election, though, that yeah. you brought up. I, I, think it, I think it's important to mention two things. The income inequality in the UK is as severe as it is in the United States. So mm. everything that we see springing up from failed neoliberal policies is also happening there. And a lot of this is tied together. I don't think Johnson, I don't think Trump are the disease. They are a disease, but they're not the disease. They're a symptom of the disease. And the disease is privatization, failed neoliberalism. All of these things that have brought up you know, tying yourselves to Wall Street banksters or, you know, in London, same same thing. So I think the people that were in labor, as we've seen here in the United States, they already know what they're going to get if they vote for your typical labor candidate or a Hillary Clinton. It's going to be yeah. more of the same policy yeah. that changed nothing. And people are financially hurting. So when they've got this sort of outsider guy that's saying all the right things, I'm going to do something about your income inequality. I'm going to do something about trade deals. I'm going to tell you to blame the brown immigrants because they're the reason you don't have better pay. It has better pay it has nothing to do mm -hmm. with the banksters, with the uh, wealth of the plutonomy consolidating their power at the top. None of that. We're going to blame the immigrants, immigrants, and these folks bought into that. And I think the other second part of that is that the Lib Dems, which is sort of the um, the genuine centrist uh, group in, in the UK mm -hmm. did very poorly. Yeah. So this was the, they had uh, Joe Swinson who was like talking about, let's, I've got a great idea to solve the, the rent problem in London. We're going to give the kids a loan to pay for the down payments on their apartments. This yeah. was an actual policy that she pushed. Yeah. So to me, that is like the apex of privatization. Mm -hmm. We're not going to do anything to relieve the tension. We're not going to do something to lower the rents, enact rent control, none of that. What we're going to do is give you a loan on top of a loan because that will make all of us money at the top yeah, and it's, exactly. we can pretend we're doing something for you. It's it's insanity, but nobody's buying that crap anymore. Right, and and if you're someone voting, and this is the defense of people who are saying just people in the UK are idiots and racists. Um, first of all... I mean, to be fair, some of them are. Yes, they bought, they bought into this lie. But we also have to keep in mind, they're not given another option. It's not like no, there's, there's no there's, left exit. That's exactly yeah. right. We gave yeah. them no left exit. Right. So Having that's, said that, though, let me ask you this. Let me to you. Yeah. Corbyn was a left exit. He truly was. I don't yes. think he's an anti-Semite. And I think he is sort of in the same vein as Bernie Sanders. He was offering that progressive policy. So what is the disconnect there? Is it simply the smears that... Folks bought into. I don't. I don't think that's entirely 100% the story. Well, we weren't in the UK, so we don't have a good perspective on how saturating the smears were. 
Yeah, I think they're pretty saturated. Um, we know from what we're seeing here in this election, what we saw in 2016. Yeah. 16 Washington Post articles against Bernie Sanders in 16 hours. We saw PBS have a whole segment on the election where they didn't mention Bernie Sanders' name. They're right. doing the same thing here. And the idea that people who are struggling, that people who are, are living paycheck to paycheck, that people who are, are worried about whether they're going to end up homeless, have time to go to, to fair.org and read through 17 articles on media criticism to figure out that they're being lied to. Right. That's absolute crap. People don't have time for this kind of stuff, and so they're vulnerable. And the more they, the more pressure they put on the working poor. Um, don't disagree. All right. So number three mm -hmm. worst, I would say, is Epstein. Is Epstein, yeah. And I think uh, the story there is once again you saw members of both sides of the aisle, not not the right or the left, both sides, the platonomy that crosses both of those segments. Mm -hmm protecting this guy because they had all all had connections yes. to what he was doing and it's outright pedophilia. Yeah, so one of the things we're seeing is is a little peek into the 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 absolute pure fundamental corruption of of the ruling elite. Yeah. Um and it, and again, it's just a peak, and they were pushing back so hard. You start wondering what else is there we're not hearing. That he got away with these atrocious crimes yes. for decades. Decades and decades. Which also crossed over into the UK. You had members of the royal family photos with. So yeah. point being is the rich get away with any kind of travesty of justice. They can do anything. They can do anything. Whereas somebody that is not a member of the platonomy, uh, anybody that's a member of the working poor, they'll end up in prison for four years, accused of a crime of stealing that they might not even be guilty of. Yeah. yeah. We have a two-tiered justice system. I think we have, yeah. I mean, you can say it's a two-tiered justice system. We have a, a injustice system that basically only focuses on people who don't have money. And then everybody else can do whatever they want. I agree. So, number three. Number two, actually, we're at number two now. So number two is one that's been near and dear to me. Um, it's it's Bolivia. I think yeah. what we saw there was absolutely a coup, even though the tremendous, a massive amount of our government won't admit to that. Um, I wanted to actually play a clip for you folks because when I was at the KDEM convention a couple months ago, every single presidential candidate was asked whether or not Bolivia was a coup. And it was shocking to me that none of them were willing to, except for one, you'll see, except for one. Yeah was willing to say it was a coup. So let's go ahead and play that clip. This is a military coup. That's not, there's no doubt about it now after the head of the military told the president and vice president to resign, and then they did. So far, Bernie Sanders is the only presidential candidate who called what happened in Bolivia a coup. Just repeated it on the stage. Do you think what happened in Bolivia is a coup? Look, I, I, I'm on the foreign relations. And, and we were just talking about Zimbabwe. And literally, we, we have to understand when you call something a coup in Africa, actually, it triggers certain things to happen. So let me just tell you what I believe in. Let's not get into semantics. That the people of Bolivia right now do not have representative government. They deserve to have a government where they get to express their democratic ideals, uh, where they get to participate in elections, and have self-determination, which we should have in, in Bolivia. And I think it's really terrible the way it's been uh, presented, because from the beginning, you had that OAS uh, press release the day after the election, 
which hinted or implied, actually, very strongly, that there was something wrong with the vote count. And they never presented any evidence at all. They didn't present it in that release. They didn't present it in their next release. They didn't present it in their preliminary report. And there's really nothing in this uh, latest uh, so-called preliminary audit that shows that there was any fraud in this election. And, and I'm going to say to you right now, the principle which we should be fighting for before arguing over semantics, the principle we should be fighting for as a country should be going against corruption, uh, uh, dealing with poverty with our neighboring nations, and making sure that uh, all Latin American countries have robust access uh, to free and fair elections. And that we, the democratic principles uh, are the ones, as OAS says, the democratic principles are the ones uh, that are paramount. Okay, so this is very important because this has been very badly described, I think, in, in most of the media. You have a, a quick count, which is not even the official count uh, of the election, and it's not binding. It's not, a, a, it, it's not what determines the result. It's just something that is done while the votes are being counted to let people know what's going on at that time. And so the quick count was interrupted. And when it resumed, and, and it was interrupted with Abel leading by about seven uh, percentage points, and when it came back, his margin increased. And if you read the press here, any of the articles, it's reported as though something terribly suspicious happened. He, he didn't have enough um, votes. He needed a 10-point margin in order to—a uh, 10-point lead over the next— runner-up in order to win in the first round. And he didn't have that when the vote count, this quick count, was interrupted, or the reporting was interrupted, I should say. And uh, and then, you know, he got it in the last uh, 14, uh, last uh, 16 percent of the votes counted. He reached 10 percent. But if you look at what was really—so uh, this was reported as a very suspicious thing. And this is what's reported over and over again to make it look like something was wrong. But if you look at it, uh, actually, actually, the whole vote count, you see there was a steady trend of Avo's margin increasing uh, almost from the beginning. And it didn't change in the last uh, 16 percent. It just continued because—and you can look at the areas that were coming in—these were rural and poor areas where— uh, Evo Morales had more support. That's all that happened. This happens in elections. You can see Mark. this if you watch election returns in the U.S. Senator, uh, the president has backed the interim successor of Bolivia's former president, Evo Morales. Do you also share that position, or do you, as the critics say, think it's a coup? Uh, well, I am good as president. Listen to everyone to make a decision on that. I'm very concerned about what's going on, of course, in Bolivia um, and the human rights violations, what happened there. Uh, but this person who is in charge uh, for quite a while, um, it does not sound like that was really an election. Um, so that's what makes me most concerned to begin with. But it was repeated over and over again uh, in all the media. And so it, it became kind of true. And, you know, um, and I would like to talk to people on the ground to figure out uh, who we should recognize them. If you look at the media, you don't see anybody, you don't see any experts, for example, uh, saying that there was something wrong with the vote count. It's really just that OAS observation mission. Again, I, I, I'm taking my information from the OAS. Which was under a lot of pressure, of course, 
from uh, Senator Rubio and uh, the Trump administration uh, to do this because they wanted they've wanted for some time to get rid of this government. You don't see evidence of a coup. What? You don't see evidence of a coup. Uh, I think that it's problematic what happened. The fraud that got them into office. And so it was a military coup. Where do you stand on Bolivia? Where do you stand on Bolivia? Would you, would you go as far as to call it a coup? Look, we had there was obviously a breakdown in the political system in Bolivia. It's the end of years of dysfunction. And this, I, I, I think what you saw was a broken political system with people stepping in without, you know, really being voted in, but also pushing somebody out who also hadn't really been voted in. So I think to use language that describes a different situation is inaccurate. What we see there is really political dysfunction. American leaders have criticized the ouster of Evo Morales in Bolivia. This is Argentina's president-elect Alberto Fernandez. What's happening in Bolivia is that there's a dominant class that will not resign themselves to losing power to the hands of a president who is the first Bolivian president that looks like Bolivians. That's what's happening. And British Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn tweeted Sunday to Morales, who, along with a powerful movement, has brought so much social progress forced from office by the military, is appalling. I condemn this coup against the Bolivian people and stand with them for democracy, social justice and independence. However, some of us are very concerned when it comes to foreign policy. Some of us. Some of us, <laughs> When it comes to foreign policy. Let's just take Bolivia, for instance. Would you call it a coup as well? I'm going to outline some of my foreign policy principles to give you a sense of where I am. I've signed a pledge to end the forever wars. We should not be in a constant state of armed conflict, as we have been for the last 18 years. In our constitution, it does not say that it's in the president's capacity to even declare war. It says it's an act of Congress. But Congress has ceded that responsibility to the executive branch in the last 18 years, and that's not the way it should be. If we do intervene militarily, there's a three-part test. You can call it the Yang Doctrine. Number one, there has to be a vital national interest at stake, or we can avert a humanitarian catastrophe. Number two, there's a clear and defined timeline for how long our troops will be in the theater and in harm's way. And number three, there are allies and partners that are willing to join us in the mission. If those three things are in place, then I would consider military action. And that gives you a sense of how my progressive priorities apply internationally. The reason why I think we are suffering so much under President Trump, if you look at the order of operations, our strength abroad reflects how we're doing at home. We were falling apart at home. We elected a narcissist reality TV star as our president. He is now an erratic and unpredictable uh, foreign policy leader. Our allies are looking around saying, what the heck happened to the United States? So how do we come back from this? We become stronger and more full at home. And then we go to our partners and say, America is back. We're going to have a sustained and reliable foreign policy set of priorities that you can actually rely on over the, the long haul. I think it was James Mattis who said, if we invest less in diplomats, we have to invest more in ammunition. And that's not a dove. That's the former Secretary of Defense. And uh, there isn't any doubt about it. The, the media hasn't really... Uh, mentioned it as much as a military coup, uh, but it, it definitely is. You wrote in a tweet that, that you thought it was a military coup, yes. coup what happened in, in, in yes. Bolivia. Many people have other point of view. They think that Evo Morales had been in power 14 years, yep. that he wanted five more, and that he wanted to become a dictator. So uh, what do you think? 
No, I don't agree with that uh, assertion. I, I think Morales, Morales did a very good job in alleviating poverty, in giving the indigenous people of Bolivia a voice that they never had before. Now, we can argue about his going for a fourth term, whether that was a wise thing to do. And they always thought it was a fraud, the election on October the 20th. Some people think that as well. But at the end of the day, it was the military who intervened in that process and asked them to leave. When the military intervenes, well, hey, in my view, that's called a coup. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you all. So, suffice it to say I agree with Bernie Sanders on this, but I think we have to have a longer discussion about foreign policy and how that relates to corporate America, how that relates to uh, the expansion of capitalism, because none of these things happen in isolation. And can we just take one pause, just acknowledge how much of a neocon weasel Jorge Ramos is? Oh, he's a total neocon weasel, but that's... <laughs> just, just had to <laughs> get that off my chest. No, yeah, 100%. But if you look at our foreign policy as it relates to not only the Middle East, not only, if you go back to far as Vietnam, I would say the reason we intervened in Vietnam had nothing to do with communism. They were breaking away from colonial France. None of this yeah. started out because of communism. That's the boogeyman we're told to hate and continue to told to hate. But the real issue here is leftist governments, whether they're in South America, Central America, Middle East, wherever else, Leftist governments are there to protect the working rights of the people in those countries, which stands against what the corporations want. Our, our multinational corporations are out there trying to make money, and they do that often by exploiting, uh, whether it's labor, whether it's resources, all of these things abroad. And this is all, so we come back to our government in the United States, and time and time again, you see them protecting the, what the corporations want, and they're doing it, they're saying it's for moral reasons, or or Evo Morales is a dictator, he went for the fourth right. term. But that's not really what's going on here. It's corporate America protecting its interests. And then tied to that, I think folks need to understand, tied to that there are always wealthy right-wingers in every single one of these countries that side with the corporations because they're part of the money-making machine that happens. Collaborators. They're collaborators, they absolutely are. Mm -hmm. So uh, it really irks me to no end because then after all of this happens, we end up with more immigrants at our borders because of all the problems we've caused, you know. Right. And then they want to complain about that too. And let's not pretend that the United States doesn't just absolutely love dictators. Of course they do. Um, what, we have a history of that. Yes, of course. And it, there's no question when you have uh, someone like Pinochet in right. in South America, uh, who's who's literally literally I disappearing mean, you know tens yeah. of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people he's torturing people he's doing he's basically you know one of the most brutal right-wing regimes we've seen right. since uh, world war ii and we're just cool with that until he he starts uh putting limits on copper prices and then we all go like oh well that's socialism even Pinochet had to do it because he couldn't run a couldn't run a pure capitalist economy. And this is this is fundamentally what the problem is, is that they know, they all know, that socialism is better for the vast majority of people, and they cannot take a chance of letting that succeed and letting the people in the modern capitalist countries like the UK and the United States and Canada see that 
and right. realize how badly they're being conned. Well, I also think, well, I mean, you look at Venezuela actually as an example of yes, that. Yes, exactly. So there's a tendency for the United States government when they're trying to sell the propaganda on this stuff to make this sort of conflation that socialism is totalitarianism, and this is absolutely not the case. Yeah. So if we look at most of the problems in the countries that mm -hmm. are discussing, it's not it's not having it's not the fact that it's a social democracy that's a problem. Mm -hmm. It's the fact that it's a totalitarian government. Yes. And a better example would be my motherland, Sweden. Mm -hmm. uh, you, if I can't tell you how many times I'll bring up, but what about Sweden? And all of these idiots are like, Sweden's not a socialist country. I'm like, it mo most certainly yeah, fucking is a socialist exactly. country, you dummy. Exactly. <laughs> and and let's talk about both of our true motherland, the Soviet Union, where it was... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, just help, helping, helping uh, near Canada out there. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. She did call me. Wait, what did she call me that one day? A Russian agent or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Before She's she blocked me? Oh, no, that was Joe Walsh. So it's a Boris and <laughs> Natasha hour here. Right. <laughs> um, the, the thing is... Uh, Marx did not like what Lenin did with his socialist and yeah, communist ideas. That's true. Um, and, and totalitarianism, by definition, cannot be socialism because socialism is the people, the, the workers, the means. owning the means yeah. of production, not Stalin owning the means of production. Right. Yeah. Uh, which, is why, um, which is why we're libertarian socialists. Yeah. Sorry, you can, you can self identify. Uh, no, yeah. no, no. I just think people get confused by that term. But yes, from a philosophical point, I 100% agree with you. Tina has a shrine to Pyotr Kropotkin in her room. <laughs> I know. For half the audience has no idea who that is, but okay. Well, now they're going to look it up. They're going to look it up. Yes, Kropotkin. that's hilarious. All right, so now let's move on to Rusty Hicks. Um, so mm. that's a little bit more uh, localized here because this, this is the chair of the California Democratic Party. But this relates to, um, and those of you that have been listening to my podcast for a long time know this, this relates back to the ADEM elections that we had here in California, many of which were corrupt, one of which I was hit at, I was punched at by the ADEM literally, 51. Literally, literally punched. Quite literally punched, because um, we were exposing their corruption. They ended up overturning the election mm -hmm. and having a new one. Um, mm -hmm. We also had the Maria Estrada situation yeah. in the adjacent. Where she was, she was also assaulted later, protesting that. Uh, later, yeah, but they didn't overturn her election. But there was a lot of fraudulent voting going on. Mm -hmm. So there's been this. This has become a thing in in the uh, with the progressives in California to try to reform the ADEM elections mm -hmm. because these delegate positions have a lot of party power and they're really important for the progressive movement if they want to make change within the party. So now we're talking about things like automatic endorsements. Yeah. Um, whether an establishment Democratic candidate gets that automatic support of the party because oftentimes people will go and they vote and they actually don't pay attention to these elections as deeply as we do. So they're going to vote for the person that has the California Democratic Party endorsement mm -hmm. and it might not necessarily be the better candidate. So right. there's, there's many things that this touches. But uh, how this relates to Rusty Hicks is he basically wrote in on a tale of corruption, I would say. We had Kimberly Ellis, who was also yeah. running, who was a great progressive. Mm -hmm. uh, she had also run against uh, Eric in the mm -hmm. previous, mm -hmm. who was now ousted because of his sexual harassment claims. So this is all very localized California politics, but it's important. It's but not, John, and, and, yes, you're right. I, want, I want to play a clip, because John actually, when we were at oh, the Cadem uh, uh, convention, John actually confronted Rusty Hicks in the press pit on this very item and kind of cornered him. So let's let's And, and the thing is, watch. John Garantiano, Independent Press. What do you plan on doing about the corruption that uh, put you in office? I'm sorry? 
63. I'm with an I'm an independent journalist. I'm with uh, I'm I was at the 8063 credentialing committee where they allowed hundreds of corrupted votes, including votes from Republicans and outside the district, uh, to go to delegates that were supporting you. What do you uh, have? What are your plans to do about that for the next election? Well, I've committed to forming a task force within the first hundred days. What do you want that task force to do? What are your ideas? Let me respond. Go ahead. To reform the ADEMS process uh -huh. to ensure that it engages as many Democrats in our state as we possibly can. Okay, so what actually concretely does that mean? What do you want them to do? Well, I think it's to address issues uh, connected to locations, uh -huh. the ways in which we vote, what campaigning looks like, mm -hmm. uh, to ensure that we have a, a selective ADEMS uh, delegates uh -huh. that are reflective of our state. But in terms of concrete things, do you have any? Do you have any plans? Do you plan on uh, implementing uh, PDI? Do you think PDI should be used in the region? So sorry, here's our plan for the first hundred days. Everything's right here. We got to get actually moving around. So okay. sorry. I'm, I'm going to guess the plan for the first hundred days doesn't address this. But thank you. Let's just say it's been a hundred days, um, and the task force is is just going. It's doing great stuff, right? Have you, you well, heard about the task force? I attended the, yeah. yes, of course I heard about it. So we, he actually did set up a task force. Um, they did uh, interviews and had an open mic at the last KDEM convention. Mm -hmm. He worked with us. But mm -hmm. I don't know what's actually going to come of this. I think there is a push in the party now to use PDI. So for folks that don't know mm -hmm. what PDI is, this is the software that allows you to confirm that somebody is registered as a Democrat and they live in the district they're voting in. Some of the pushback that was received on this was like, well, we're not the party of, of voter ID laws and voter suppression. Well, that's that's good. That's not what this is about, however. What we're really discussing here is whether or not Republicans that live in the wrong district should be voting in our delegate elections. And I think the answer to that is clearly no. And I don't think that that's the same thing as voter suppression. That's actually the opposite. This is ensuring that members of each district have representation uh, from the grassroots. So, uh, and this is this is why it's important. It's people outside of California are looking at this um, and saying, "Why? Why do I care about this?" You care about this for the same reason you care about Bolivia, um, because California is a gigantic economy. And if we had progressive leadership in California, we would have single payer in California right now. We would have a we would have free college. We would have probably a twenty dollar minimum wage throughout the state if we had progressive leadership. And the goal of the Democrats, of the California Democratic Party, is to prevent that from happening at all costs. Well, you know, you mentioned free college, so I feel like I need to chime in on this. We once had free college. Yes. This is not a new concept. The state of California, under Pat Brown's master plan, look mm -hmm. up Pat Brown's master plan if you're not familiar with this. But when we created the UC system, the Cal State system, the idea was to provide college education for all of the natives of the state. Yep. The UC system was the feeding tube for PhDs and things of this nature. And the Cal State had a mandate to um, educate based on geographical location. So mm -hmm. the closer the kids are to the Cal State University, the lower GPA you would have to have to get in because their first priority or mandate was the geographical location of the students. So the, the idea with this entire system, and of course the JCs as well as the junior colleges feeding up into both, mm -hmm. but the point was is that we were going to educate everybody in the state. And at that time, they were fully funded by the state. I was, as you know, on the alumni board for my UC school the last couple of years, and I can tell you without equivocation, the state funding is now down to 8%. 
The UC system is now funded at 8%. They might as well be a private university. And this has everything to do with neoliberalism, privatization, and everything that came in in the last 30 years, I would say, as far as a shift in what the Democratic Party thought was a priority. Yep. <sighs> <Sorry>. <laughs> anyway, thank you for attending my TED Talk. Yes. Let's... <laughs> Let's move on to the best things because, you know, that's much happier. Okay. So, number five, Ding Dong, the witch is dead. Ding Dong, who's dead? Breaking David Koch, now also dead on the outside. <laughs> um, polls, polls showing Koch brothers down by 50%. Died decades too late. Yeah. And David Koch, I'm... We're assuming everybody knows who this guy is. Um, I think probably most folks do, but in case you don't, David Koch is a very wealthy man. Uh, he's what, 10th, 11th richest man in the world, yep. inherited wealth. He has 40, 50 billion dollars. Mm -hmm. Koch Industries, large multinational corporation, Georgia Pacific. Gigantic contributor to uh, climate change. Gi yeah, yeah, so he's been fined by the government multiple times for, for polluting. The fines are so, they're so minimal mm -hmm. though that they're not really punishment. They would rather violate the uh, EPA rules and then pay the fine after the fact. Yeah, so these guys, both both David mm -hmm. and Charles Koch, are, are corporate criminals. Yeah, 100%. Uh, but this is not why uh, they were such horror shows. We have a lot of corporate criminals running around. The reason that David and Charles Koch were so horrible is because they literally attempted to buy our political system. 100%. Uh, and so they were financing climate change deniers. They were yes. financing neoliberal and neocon candidates. They gave money to the DLC back in the yep. uh, early. They 90s. started the DLC. The DLC was a was a coke funded organization. Yeah. So and, and now those same people were funding were were funding uh, neolib Democrats. Yeah. And and you'll find out you. Pick any conservative or centrist think tank like Third Way, and you will find Coke money. At, at some root. point, yeah. yeah. And it wasn't just our political system. When that wasn't enough, they tried to buy our universities. There was a whole scandal where uh, he donated money to the economic school. I want to say it was University of Florida. It was, it yeah. Was, but the point being was that he wanted hiring and firing, say, on the professors. Yeah, and the idea yeah, was wow. yeah, yeah, absolutely. He did. They made a deal for this donation, and which is really egregious because now you're basically saying we're not this uh, independent academic research facility. Yeah. We're trying to rubber stamp kids that believe in our libertarian, hands off, no regulation form mm -hmm. of, of government. Yeah. And train train them up young to believe this stuff. Yeah. It's it's unacceptable. So just but since we're uh, you know compassionate, libby lib progressives. I just want to say I do feel for uh, Charles Koch in his grief at losing his brother, and I do hope uh, they are reunited soon. Yeah, let's not have him die decades too late. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe we need one of them in prison before. before I don't die. know, right? All right, number four. Number four. We have to have a conversation because we're Californians. We have to have a conversation about Kamala Harris and her Who? implosion of a campaign. Who? Oh, it's very funny. Very funny. So, I. Couple of things. We saw the takedown that Tulsi gave of Kamala at that debate, yes. which was I had been waiting for somebody to do this because everything she brought up was absolutely accurate. Congresswoman Gabbard, you took issue with Senator Harris confronting Vice President Biden at the last debate. You called it a quote, false accusation that Joe Biden is a racist. What's your response? I want to bring the conversation back to the broken criminal justice system. 
that is disproportionately negatively impacting black and brown people all across this country today. Now, Senator Harris says she's proud of her record as a prosecutor and that she'll be a prosecutor president, but I'm deeply concerned about this record. There are too many examples to cite, but she put over 1,500 people in jail for marijuana violations and then laughed about it when she was asked if she ever smoked marijuana. She blocked evidence. She blocked evidence that would have freed an innocent man from death row until the courts forced her to do so. She kept people in prison beyond their sentences to use them as cheap labor for the state of California. And she fought to keep cash you, bail system in place that impacts poor people in the worst kind of way. Thank you, Congresswoman. Uh, Senator Harris, your response. As the elected Attorney General of California, I did the work of significantly reforming the criminal justice system of a state of 40 million people, which became a national model for the work that needs to be done. And I am proud of that work. And I am proud of making a decision to not just give fancy speeches or be in a legislative body and give speeches on the floor, but actually doing the work of being in the position to use the power that I had to reform a system that is badly in need of reform. That is why we created initiatives that were about reentering former offenders and getting them counseling. It Thank is you. why, and because I know that criminal justice Thank system you, is Senator. so broken, that I am an advocate for what Thank we you, need Senator. to do to your, not only decriminalize, but legalize marijuana in the United States. I want to, I want to bring uh, Congresswoman uh, Gabbard back in your response. The bottom line is, Senator Harris, when you were in a position to make a difference and an impact in these people's lives, you did not. And worse yet, in the case of those who were on death row, innocent people, you actually blocked evidence from being revealed that would have freed them until you were forced to do so. There is no excuse for that. And the people who suffered under your reign as prosecutor, oh, you owe them an apology. Mm -hmm. Harris is her, her her AG record is just heinous on so many levels. She is somebody that defended this idea of having private prison labor because she thought it would screw up the labor pool for the state. Now, if you don't know this, our firefighters, a lot of them come from the prison labor pool. There was mm -hmm. a time when even Victoria's Secret and some other private corporations were paying 30 cents an hour for labor and pocketing, which is a twofold problem. Not only is that a form of involuntary servitude, which is which is absolutely slavery. The second part of that problem is you're not taking a good good jobs away from folks right. that would be making normally $15, $16 an hour. So this but is a double-edged sword. <laughs> it's both. I mean, it's both. It's, it's, it's just no bueno, no matter how you slice it. Right. So um, she was jailing uh, parents of true kids because that made sense mm -hmm. to her. These mm -hmm. folks are working two jobs, they're poor, their kids skip school, and now you're going to put in jail? Are you kidding me? Yes. And capper of all cappers, she refused to prosecute Steve Mnuchin when she had ample evidence of what he did in our foreclosure crisis. Overwhelming. Prices. Overwhelming. So, horrible, horrible record. And the Catholic Church. Did you mention the Catholic Church? I have not. She I mean, I would go off she, she, she stalled investigations into the Catholic Church pedophilia uh, in, She's in terrible, California. Terrible. She's just terrible, so, terrible from from top to bottom. She has no business holding any public office. Uh, and I look forward to uh, her being our former senator in a couple years. I agree. So now let's cut to the uh, California Democratic Convention where we shot some video yeah. of um, her uh, staffers doing one okay. of two things. Well, we have my favorite, Joyful Warrior. What is that? Yeah. Warrior! 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 Warrior!
beyond the pale to me. Joyful. When I say joyful, you say warrior? Really? Well, also the fact that she's running against two actual warriors. Yeah, Tulsi Gabbard, yeah. Um, and, and you'll notice if you go back um, and look at her, including in her response to Tulsi, she's always using this warlike language like courage under fire, in the trenches. Um, I, the one thing, the one nitpick I had about Tulsi's thing is when she said that if, if Tulsi had said, no, I actually had courage under fire. Yeah. That would have been, that would have been the knockout blow. That would have been the knockout. Right, right there. I don't know, it was pretty devastating um, as it was. But we do have to acknowledge one other thing about that clip you just saw. The Sunrise kids were just downstairs from, from the That's Kamala right. demonstration and they were protesting the lack of a climate debate. Right. And the Kamala people sat up literally 20 feet from them and were shouting over them. Yeah, shouting over them. That's absolutely true. So another thing that they did was right before Bernie Sanders started his speech uh, to the general session, uh, we had two things happen. First, uh, Reverend Barber was speaking about poverty and what the Democratic Party needed to start doing to address you know, poor people's right. campaign, Reverend Barber. So I was actually sitting this next in, I was in, yeah, I was sitting there in the, uh, the, there was a small little section that you could get into if you were just a member of the public. And the delegates were in front of us and the press kit was right behind me. But I took my camera up into that little area to get some video. And one of the Kamala Harris supporters sitting next to me actually was complaining about Reverend Barber and his speech because she thought it was inappropriate, which I was like, Wow, okay. Reverend, look, we should say Reverend Barber took the Democratic Party out to the woodshed. He did. He did. And he and he had a right to do that because yep. everything he brought up was completely uh, mm -hmm. spot on. But I think the more egregious thing came when, so Bernie Sanders is uh, coming up to speak yep. after Kamala Harris was. So it was Reverend yes. Barber, Kamala Harris, then Bernie yep. Sanders. They all were chanting as loud as they could. And you can hear, um, you can hear the person announcing, next up, Ber Senator Bernie right. Sanders from Vermont, whatever. And they're chanting, 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 and they're walking out. Mm -hmm. And then they tried to deny this on Twitter when we posted oh, the video. No, no, no. So, so there's a couple things. First let's off, play, were... no, let's play the video first. Oh, play the video. Okay. So people know what we're talking about. Question one hour. continued to chant through the start of Bernie Sanders' speech. Eventually, the security came and asked them to not afford So, yeah, you could hear them continuing to chant as he's speaking, and then mm -hmm. they were denying it later. Well, it yeah, they, they, they pulled out the, the, the lapdog's lapdog, Tommy Christopher, yeah. um, <laughs> to, to post from his office in, in D.C. He's with Media Eye, so folks Yeah, so Media Eye. So first of all, he seals my video. Yeah. Um, he puts a media-eyed bug on it as, as if they were the ones doing the, the recording. Um, and then he 
and, and then he proceeds to say that stuff you're seeing happen on the video, that's not what happened. Yeah, you know, and it was so ridiculous because Tommy was not present. And when I responded to him on Twitter, I said, Tommy, I'm sorry. Did I miss you in the press pit? Because I was there and I don't yeah. think I saw you anywhere. Yeah, exactly. exactly. It was ridiculous. And then even Dave Weigel got involved. Oh, Dave. <laughs> Poor Dave. Um, and Dave, Dave wasn't there either. But yes, he was. No, no. I mean, Dave wasn't um, at the point where we were showing the... He got more into the Sunrise Movement thing where I was saying they were counter-protesting the Sunrise Movement people. Um, I'm but following. he was he was there in the press pit when that happened. Yeah, he, he but agreed with us that that happened. Dave agreed with us. Yeah, on you that. missed that. I, guess. I missed that part. Okay. He was he was <laughs> because I was talking about this the the Kamala protesters shouting on the Sunrise people, and he did come forward and say that didn't happen, and he was not he was not there when it was what was going on. So it was an interesting it was an interesting juxtaposition there. Um, yeah, but the 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 thing. Uh, that warms my heart and why we put this on our best um, our, our best stories is that for once, someone who didn't deserve to fail upwards failed to fail upwards. And it wasn't just Kamala Harris. It was her staff of Hillary Castoffs, Ian Sims, and the other people who were supporting this campaign who were just the most bitter, empty, nasty human beings that I have ever encountered in politics. And that says a lot because I've, I've been watching the Clintons since uh, 1988. Uh, but they all uh, basically failed in trying to scold people into supporting their candidate. Yeah. And that can only be good news. We need much, much more of this. Yeah, I agree. 100%. So she's now dropped out of the race. What yeah. do you think was the final nail in the coffin? Um, I think that nail is called Kamala Harris. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this is a woman known for not doing her homework. And the for, hammer was? And and the hammer was uh, Major Tulsi Gabbard. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. Yeah, I think they just they they spin out. There. But the other thing that should warm your hearts if you're if you're uh, Twitter peeps like like we are, is that they were literally afraid of us. They yeah. were literally afraid of what to say about their record or how they could address their record. They they felt I don't think they were. I think if they were more competent, they could have come up with something. But they literally felt like we had backed them into a corner um, right. because whatever they said was going to be met with a huge response on Twitter. Well, gee, when you send, you know, a couple hundred paid trolls around to talk about your really horrible candidate and yell at anybody who doesn't agree, yeah, you're going to have a lot of pushback on Twitter. So, yeah, so the problem too. was is her her record was there. It was available to anybody that wanted to see it that yeah. hadn't seen it yet. And when I think people finally got around to really looking at it, and they realized there was no talking point against it. But this is the thing that just floors me is they did did they not think this was going to come up? No. Why would they think? Hang on, John. Why would they think this was a problem? Think about Hillary Clinton's record. Yeah. Think about every other political operative that's come from the, the protected DNC establishment. Mm -hmm. they, a lot of them have egregious, horrible records. Yeah. But they have, always, they have successfully managed to get around that time and time again because mm -hmm. people don't pay attention. Right. Or... We didn't have the internet, you know, 20 years ago to like so you could just mm -hmm. bring stuff up. There's a lot of reasons that are all I think coming to uh, 
coming to the forefront right now as mm -hmm. to why this is no longer going to work. Yeah. But it is no longer going to work. So. But it still took a candidate stepping forward and and saying the words. I agree. And I I have to say as much as I love Bernie, I I didn't see him doing that the way that Tulsi did and just taking. No, Tulsi took the lead on that. I'm thankful for that. Mm -hmm. um, Bernie's just a nice guy. He didn't do it against Hillary either. No. There's a part of Bernie that's just not that person. Um, yeah. You know, so let's move on to the next thing because we're still going to be at the DNC convention. I want to bring up uh, something that happened. The Sunrise Movement literally shut down the resolutions committee. Um, so let's roll that. The Sunrise Movement's outside and the DNC's not letting them in. What's going on? Mr. Chair, I apologize for speaking out of order, but it's to my knowledge that the staff has been told to let folks in. And so if everyone will just... 
Climate change debate. Sorry, I just sprained an eye muscle real fast. <laughs> I, but I think more importantly, you know, you have those those some of those protests coming like saying this is the Democratic Party, this is not the. I'm, and I'm thinking to myself, yes, yes, it is, and it's high mm-hmm. time you guys all woke up. That is yep. absolutely who the Democratic Party is. Yep. During the actual resolution debate on the floor of the general section the following Sunday, which was when they were closing it out and, and voting through all of the uh, resolutions that had been adopted by each committee. The first person that came up and spoke against this, because we ended up with a watered down, there's, there was three or four different resolutions having to do with climate change. Mm-hmm. The first person, and one of them passed through, the first person that finally got in there was Maria Cardona to speak. She was the first person. She is a lobbyist for the fossil fuel industry. So mm-hmm. she got there to say, no, we can't have this. And you know they always use other excuses. Then nobody speaks to the actual problem, which is the, the uh, quid pro quo with, with yes. the corporate lobbyists in the, in the, right. within the party mechanisms. But they say things like, well, if we do it for climate change, why aren't we doing it for criminal justice reform? Why aren't we doing it for uh, poor people's, you know, this, workers' rights? They go down the list and they make a bunch of excuses as if we can't do all of these things right. because they think it's effective. Uh, so one of, the, one of the things that was a highlight of this, though, was the mm-hmm. later on in the afternoon, three or 400 of these kids were lining the main hallway where you had to walk in to get into yeah. the convention. And we had several presidential candidates and spokespeople for presidential candidates come out and address these kids. I think uh, the best fit speech of the day was given by Nina Turner, who- Definitely. Yeah, so let's let's go ahead and roll that speech. Until it's one, we're
Senator Bernie Sanders campaign, but as, as a member of the DNC, I believe we need to have a climate forum. So we're going to continue to push. We're going to continue to fight like hell and push people where they need to go. Thank you for standing up for the future, the future right now and future generations yet unborn, and the young will lead them. And we're going to kick ass all the way, too, doing, doing the leading, right? So, you to ever get weary and well doing every great thing that we've ever done in this country and dare I, dare I say the world has always come from the grassroots not from the grass tops yeah. um, to quote one of my favorite people of history and I have many so I'll just try to stick with one or two but one comes to mind and that's President Nelson Mandela and he once said that it always seems impossible until it is done and we gonna do it So do not get weary, weary and well-doing. Do not get distracted. Continue to push. When history is written, they're going to write about those who stood up. You see, titles are good, but purpose is better. And we, we, need, we need more purpose-driven people in this world, not folks who are just caught up with fancy titles, but people who are going to do something when they get in the room. You are purpose-driven. As you all know, Senator Sanders put out a plan, one of the most aggressive Green Deal, Protect Mother Earth plans of any presidential candidate. Thank you so much for supporting that plan. Thank you for being a part of the creation of that plan. So we gonna do this. So we gonna do this. We will not turn around. The last person I want to quote who's been on my soul is Congresswoman Barbara Jordan. She said these words, what the people want is very simple. They want an America as good as its promise. Yeah. And not only are you fighting for an America as good as its promise, you are fighting for a world that is good as its promise. Yeah. Because climate chaos does not only affect us here in the United States of America, it affects our brothers and sisters all over the world. Yeah. So this movement, and young folks and seasoned folks, I want you to know that your mission is so high, you can't get over. That's right. And your mission is so low, you can't get under. Uh -huh. And your mission is so wide, you can't get around. Yeah. We're going to continue to stand boldly and push until climate justice is won. Thank you so much. she's also a DNC member. So she has been in these rooms and she's seen firsthand some of the problems that really, you know, came out strongly in 2016. I think those problems have been there for many, many years prior to that. But I think 2016 sort of the, you, we can call it the proxy battle between Bernie Sanders and the Hillary Clinton camp. But, but that rift became so apparent and it still hasn't been corrected. I know one of the things that I always go back to is the Unity and Reform Commission. Every single Clinton appointee to that 
was a lobbyist. Yeah. Every single one. And Nina Turner was also on that committee. She was appointed by uh, Senator Sanders. So, you know, we have a battle ahead here. And the corporate lobbyist influence in the DNC is still there. It's still strong. Mm-hmm. Like we mentioned earlier, Maria Cardona was the first person to speak out against why they should not have climate change uh, debate during the floor vote on the general session on Sunday. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just very frustrating, though, to, to see that stuff. But I'm, I'm glad more people are becoming more aware of it because this is how we fix it. And, in fact, on that note, I asked Tulsi Gabbard the following week. I was at her town hall, and this is the question I asked her. This started in 2016. We, we took those steps t- towards reform, but obviously the problems are still there. What, what do we do about this? Yeah. Let's play that clip. Tulsi, can I ask an add-on question to that? Sure. I was just at the DNC meeting last week covering that, and I witnessed some of the lack of transparency that you're bringing up. Uh, one of the things that I noticed was that Tom Perez has uh, 75 at-large delegates that he appoints, and he was able to pull these out as proxy votes when he needed to to change the outcome of a vote. Um, so what do we need to do to fix this? Because obviously the, UR- the URC did not fix More it. More people need to get involved in the process to be involved in those rule changes in the committee. You know, we we saw some changes come about post-2016 because you had a lot of folks who were really frustrated and angry about what happened, and they wanted to do something instructive about it. They ran for those local delegate positions. They ran for those positions on the state central committees. They ran for those national delegate positions so that they could have a seat at the table and bring about those changes and those reforms. That's what needs to happen. So she's hinting at something here that I think is really important. They ran for delegate positions. They ran for positions on the state central committees. And she's right about this because a lot of those uh, positions kind of are feeder into DNC slots. So how how we fix it is we we need to get rid of the establishment hacks that are in there. We need to get rid of the lobbyists and do it by grass. There's a lot of them. So yeah. I mean I'm running I'm running for my for the uh, LA County Central Committee right now on the next ballot mm-hmm. because I took what she said what Curtis Wilde said what Nina Turner said to heart they're right we yeah. don't fix this unless we get involved and we do a dem enter of the whole entire process and they are doing everything they possibly can including punching people yeah. to keep <laughs> to 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 seriously to keep control of this party because yeah. they know that there are so many more of the grassroots Bernie Crat, Tulsi Crat people. And if they just show up, if you just show up in California or in whatever state you're in to be part of this, uh, part of the party, uh, these people will have no way of keeping you out except for just blatantly cheating. And if we get enough people, nobody can blatantly cheat that much. Yeah, that's exactly right. If we get enough people in there, we get to change the rules that they are currently using to keep us at bay. So that's why this is important. And I think what Tulsi said is is absolutely spot on. All right, so number two, very exciting for me because she's from my motherland, Sweden. Sweden. So uh, Greta Thunberg, who is, or Thunberg. You mean Thunberg? (laughs) Thunberg. She's been coaching me on Sweden. Yes. Uh, You know, she is amazing. She's a young girl, she's 15, she's on the spectrum, but she's passionate, she's intelligent. She is committed to her cause, which is uh, doing something about climate change, the climate crisis. She was here visiting us in Los Angeles, and she did not get on an airplane to come here because she wanted to stay true to uh, the issue that she's fighting for. 
So she took a ship over. Right. But we have here in Los Angeles, she gave a speech at the youth climate strike where they were going after our uh, uh, governor, Governor Newsom, mm -hmm. because he's not been on board with fixing enough of these problems. Yeah. But let's run part of that speech. Earlier this week, I visited Paradise in California, and I met with survivors who showed me around the devastation Street after street with no houses left. I heard heartbreaking stories. 18,000 buildings were destroyed and at least 86 people died. Today in California, we can see the wildfires happening just around the corner. Wildfires that are being intensified by the climate crisis. But it's not just here. Everywhere around the world, we can see these horrible environmental feedbacks that countless of people are suffering and dying from. Right now, we are living in the beginning of the climate and ecological breakdown. And we cannot continue to look away from this crisis anymore. So, uh, so I love Greta for that. So, what are your thoughts on Greta? You love her as much as I do. I, I do. I, I guess. Um, I, <laughs> yeah, I guess? got I, mostly for for Greta. I just have this, this amazing respect. I think about what a train wreck I was at, at 15 right. and, and holy crap. I mean, she's, yeah. she's amazing. She's and, amazing. And I do think, um, this has, this has partially to do with her being up the spectrum, which yeah. is why, um, I think when people use that as some sort of an insult or some sort of a way to, to discard people, mm -hmm. um, I, I, I think it's, it's not only incredibly hurtful and it not only makes you a, total idiot yeah. um it uh it, it it's really counterproductive because you know autistic people can do uh amazing things they can do all kinds of things and it doesn't it it's not something that should be shamed in, in no way. and i think you're right it, it might be what gives her such laser focus on on fixing this problem yeah and, and you know here's the thing that she says that i agree with entirely if mm -hmm. we don't do anything about this situation, none of these other issues are going to matter. Right. And it really is that serious. It really right. is that dire. So. We just need to find a thousand more of her. We did a thousand more of her. I'm glad that she was the time person of the year. She absolutely deserved that. That was amazing. That I was cannot amazing. believe they did that. Uh, and I also love that she referred to Los Angeles as a village. That's such a Swedish thing to say. It's very, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, so that's our number two. Our number one, I guess everybody's going to guess this already. They already know where, where our number one is. Mm hmm so my number one is uh, the Bernie surge. I'm going to call it the Bernie surge. So Bernie Sanders, who is somebody I have followed and had great love and respect for for well over a decade. He's somebody that's, uh, I remember first subscribing to his senator, his state senate uh, mm -hmm. emails, you know, 10 years ago because I would get better information from Bernie Sanders than I would ever get from Feinstein or Boxer here in yes. the state of California. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, awesome. um, you know, when he first ran for president in 2016, I was ecstatic. I'm mm -hmm. glad that he threw his hat in a second time. And the difference now is 
he has name recognition. Before it was just like the diehards like myself knew who Senator mm-hmm. Sanders was. Mm-hmm. Now I think just about everybody knows who he is. They like his policy. They understand that a lot of the smear campaigns against him, like the Bernie Blackout, for example, yep. are just bogus crap. So I think uh, the, one of the turning points was Bernie Sanders' no middle ground speech that actually did happen here locally at our Kadem, uh meeting. And it trended on Twitter. It got lots of pickup in the media. One of his best speeches ever. One of his best speeches ever. So let's roll the no middle, middle ground speech. We now continue with more of our Democratic candidates for president. Please welcome U.S. Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont. for Jane, myself, and my family. Let me thank the California Democratic Party for helping to make this state one of the great progressive forces in America. And let me thank all of you who supported my 2016 campaign for president. together a political revolution whose ideas and energy have not only transformed the Democratic Party, but have transformed politics in America. And today, we take that revolution forward. And let me thank everybody in this room for your determination to defeat the worst president in the history of this country. A president who is a racist, a sexist, a homophobe, and a religious bigot. Together, we are going to defeat a president who has the most corrupt administration in history and a president who knows nothing about real American values. All of us are united in defeating Trump, but let me be frank with you, and raise the issue that I think is on everyone's mind. And that is, what is the best way to defeat Trump?
and those who have chosen for whatever reason not to be in this room. About the best way forward. So let me be as clear as I can be. In my view, we will not defeat Donald Trump unless we bring excitement and energy into the campaign. We give millions of working people and young people a reason to vote and a reason to believe that politics is relevant to their lives. We cannot go back to the old ways. We have got to go forward with a new And when it comes to foreign policy, no middle ground. 
we will finally put an end to a bloated middle military budget and end endless wars. Brothers and sisters, Trump wants to divide us up. We will stand together. Black and white and Latino, Native American, Asian American. We will stand together and create the nation that we know we will become. Brothers and sisters, at this momentous moment in American history, we have got to be thinking not just about ourselves, but future generations. Let us go forward together. Thank you. Delegates and guests, here they introduce William Castro. Please welcome Joaquin Castro. So my favorite part of this speech is it sort of not only not only is it a well-written speech, but I sort of ex it exemplifies how Bernie Sanders has shifted the Overton window in the country. Yeah. So we're now having discussions about policy measures that would have been unthinkable 15 years whether it's uh, Medicare for all, you know, that used to be, ooh, scary socialized medicine, mm -hmm. whether it's changing our foreign policy and mm -hmm. being less of this uh, neoliberal, neocon, have to intervene in everybody's shit kind of foreign policy, mm -hmm. whether it's uh, doing something about the income inequality in the sense where we're going to tax rich people again, we're going to tax corporations again like Amazon. Yeah. So to me, this is just, and even if he doesn't win, I think he is going to win. I think Bernie Sanders is our next president. I'm saying that right now. But even if he doesn't, his, the success of, of this revolution thus far is this and this in and of itself. We've shifted the conversation. We can now talk about these leftist ideals mm -hmm. in a positive way. Mm -hmm. And whether or not it happens in four years or eight years, it's going to happen. Things are going to change. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but Bernie totally has to win. Yeah, I, I, agree. Mean, I think totally, he's going to win. I do think he's going to win. I, I think that in, in a fair election where you didn't have every corporate media outlet turned against him, you didn't have the party itself working against him both in legal and I think a lot of illegal ways, um, and you didn't have every think tank and every print outlet turned against him, uh, the guy wins it in a walk. I, mean, I think it's, it's not even close. I don't, I don't think that stuff matters, honestly. I think, it, I think A, a lot of it's backfiring. It is people starting see, to backfire. People are seeing it for what it is. Every mm -hmm. time they have a Bernie blackout. So here's an example. Mm -hmm. I had Eli Kennedy or Ellie Kennedy on my podcast a couple weeks ago. She works for the polling station uh, outfit that did with the University of Florida that did that poll where they mm -hmm. just simply left Bernie Sanders off the poll. Yeah. How yeah. does this even happen? He is polling in every single poll, one, two, or three. Mm -hmm. But you're just going to leave him off? Well, I guess he can't win the poll yeah. if he's not in it. But this, but people see that for what it is. And I think they are starting to figure it out. Yeah, um, I think I mean, it backfires. They try and pass it off as some error or something. But um, this is what Green, Glenn Greenwald said about Russiagate. Yeah. Is it would be a lot easier to accept these errors if they weren't all in one direction. Right. And that's exactly what's happening. They are rigging 
the the election against Bernie now. And I don't think there's going to be any limit to how much they will push it. I, I, really I don't think don't. they're rigging anything. I think they're they're trying to control the conversation media wise. Yeah, this is this is this we is haven't a, gotten to the rigging part yet. This that is might a longer, happen. This <laughs> is a longer longer conversation because I, I'm fully convinced it's going to happen. Um, so, well, let me ask you a question. I was having a conversation, um, and actually, when I was on the combo cash, mm-hmm. I brought this up, and I, mm-hmm. it's something I want to bring up again. So, I was talking to one of the DNC members that I know, and he was telling me about the fifteen percent state rule. Yeah. So, and why it is to our benefit that there are so many this time versus last mm-hmm. time, why there are so mm-hmm. many folks running, how this works towards a benefit. Mm-hmm. If there's one or two um, contenders that pull around the 15% mm-hmm. mark, so 14%, 15%, 16%, and I think that's clearly going to be the case. I think coming out of the gate, you're going to have Warren, Bernie, and Biden all pulling in that general vicinity. And then you're going to have the fall-off. We're, we're at 3%, we're at 2%, right. we're at 6%. Well, right. all of those delegates get allocated to the top positions, mathematically, the pledge delegates do. Sure. So his argument was that it's, it's feasible because of that reason. If Bernie is up there and he's in the pole position or he's in the second position, he's going to start taking up some of those 2%, 3% delegates into his, into his side. And that could only help us. So his argument was that we might not even make it to the second round of voting at the convention for this reason. I don't know how that's going to play out. I think we'll know after Iowa, New Hampshire, after the first handful of uh, states vote. But it is an interesting viewpoint. Well, I think you're going to you're going to see. Um, I, my prediction is they will do whatever they can, um, short of like personally putting their freedom at risk uh, to keep Bernie from winning. The people, and you're absolutely right, in a, in a fair election, uh, the the clown car actually helps. Uh, but there's a couple other things it does. There are people who ran the numbers in 2016 and saw that the Hillary Clinton exceeded the margin of error. But there was only two, that's a different conversation. Exactly. Which is, so I don't think Exactly, it's... and that's my point, is that when there's more candidates in the race, it's harder to detect those types of irregularities. I don't know. I'm not much, that much of a conspiracy theorist. I don't think, um, I think the difference is, is when we saw those delegates going over to Hillary Clinton, it was because of these reasons. There was only two of them. But his point is that mm-hmm. now you've got the 4%, the 2%, the 3%. Look, I get that this is an opinion that's not necessarily popular on the left, but mm-hmm. I think it has some validity to it. Yeah. So, um, and I I want to believe, I want to believe that, mm-hmm. that the party's not as corrupt as, as we all want to think that it but is. But we don't like to believe that. Um, but to quote one of your favorite presidents, trust but verify. <laughs> um, which he actually stole from the Russians anyway. So we're quoting Russia again. Ooh. Uh, but if we're not ready to cause holy hell when they pull something like Nevada, when they pull something like New York, when they pull something like Arizona, which yeah. was just straight up election rigging, um, then they're going to do it. Well, they did any look here in, in, in Los Angeles. You had Dean Logan that was he tossed ballots. He threw out forty thousand yeah, ballots without verifying, uh, mm-hmm. calling the voters and giving them a chance to verify their signatures. The ACLU uh, sued Dean Logan for this reason. Mm-hmm. And they were right to do it. Uh, so I'm not saying there's not nefarious crap that goes on. Alex Padilla is still our secretary. Alex, Alex Padilla is the poster child for corrupt voting, in my opinion, because he uh, he and Basara actually went and defended this lawsuit. They yeah. instead, instead instead of them turning around saying to the ACLU, "You're right, 
we should have contacted these voters and given them the chance to come in and, and verify their signature um, will do better. They didn't do that. They fought against the ACLU, which is absolutely mind, hair on fire, mind blowing kind of a thing. And you and I were in the room when Alex Padilla was speaking and he, he blamed the Russians for yeah, the did. election irregularities <laughs> in yeah. 2016. And I'm like, yeah, you're the fucking Russians, dude. Yeah, no, you know, which was the, yeah, I'm like, Alex, come on, man. The ACLU sued you twice now. Yeah, so, mm-hmm. so I'm not saying that those things don't go on, but I'm hoping that, and I'm, I'm wanting to believe that we are going to see less of that going forward because of the attention that has been shown on mm-hmm. those subjects. I think it's going to be more difficult for them to get away with right. this because people are more aware. And I'm saying we can't, we can't just hope. We have to make sure. Well, look, I'll tell you what, if, if they do any of these things, I will be the first out on the street with my pitchfork and guillotine. We've already got our tickets to Milwaukee. Yeah, I'll be there in Milwaukee for sure. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, I mean, my, my thing that I've said a bunch of times is the only way Bernie wins us is if they're more afraid of us than they are of Bernie. Well, I think they are afraid of us. I think that is the point. Mm -hmm. Uh, Look at... They're only trying to do these things because they are afraid. The Plutonomy's reign is coming to an end. They've had absolute control mm-hmm. of our economy and our government now for 30, 35 years. Sure. Uh, in varying degrees. So, But they also know, and it's like that Citibank memo that came out in 2005, which is where I get the word Plutonomy from. I don't mm-hmm. know if folks know this. Uh, and there was a leaked Citibank memo <laughs> in which they were discussing the only way, the only thing that stops the Plutonomy from controlling our economy and our government is if the 99% actually wake up and realize that there are more of them than there are of us. Yeah. But I think that has come to pass.